good to see you all today, and uh, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. I should say that my plan is to continue our exposition of the book of Revelation next week, Lord willing, that's my current plan, Um, but for today, I'd like to finish uh, what I began a couple weeks ago, namely thinking about affliction and and trials and difficulties in our lives. Uh, There are several in our congregation that are going through afflictions, health trials, uh, other types of difficulties, and um, uh, even myself uh, of late and in various areas. And I think we can all relate to this. And if you're not going through some difficulty now, just wait because you will. (laughs) Soon enough, it's going to come. That's part of the Christian life. Um, The Christian life uh, is one of difficulty. Our Lord said in this world, you will have tribulation. Let's say you may, if you're in a persecuted country or something like that, but you will. You will have tribulation. And so the Christian should expect suffering, difficulty, pain, disappointment, even at times some despair. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can relate to this on one level or another. And we need to submit to God when He sends these difficulties into our life. Yesterday at the men's breakfast, we had a great time talking about James 1. And there, James says to count it all joy when you encounter various trials, various temptations, very multicolored trials of all different stripes coming from all different directions, all different types, that we are to count it joy. We're to reckon it joy. And why? Because we're, we are growing in our endurance and perseverance, being conformed to the image of Christ so that we might be stronger. Uh, as we're made complete and mature, we might be stronger when the next trial comes and handle it more Christ-like. Uh, by way of review, uh, we did look, we're look, our text is verses 16 to 18 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, last time in part one of this, I opened up verse 16 and just very briefly touched on 17. Today our text primarily will be 17 and 18. But by way of review, in verse 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, Far beyond all comparison, while we look, not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now in verse 16, Paul um, talks about this idea, first of all, that he doesn't lose heart. If if anyone's going to lose heart, you would expect the Apostle Paul to lose heart. This man was fiercely afflicted. He suffered greatly as laid out through 2 Corinthians in a few places and uh, through the book of Acts and other epistles. It's very clear. You would expect to see him desponding and despairing. But no, he says, we do not lose heart, even in the midst of all of this. And though the outer man is in a process of decay, we do not lose heart. Why? Because though the outer man is decaying, Dying, really, carrying around the dying of Jesus in our body. Though it is, though that is dying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. The inner man, as we said, speaks to the heart, the will, the affections. They're continually being renovated for the true child of God, being strengthened as you would go through these difficulties. 
increasing in faith towards God and strengthening us. So, so the, the paradox here is that as the body grows old and decays, the inward man is becoming young and invigorated as he longs for heaven and as he knows how to handle difficulties as God would sovereignly send them. Uh, Martin Luther said, and I, I know I read this last time, but it's too good to not read again. Men will never become great in theology until they become great in suffering. Affliction is the best book in my library. You look at the heroes of the faith, you know, those who have suffered greatly, Spurgeon and Calvin and others, and that's most certainly true. Men who are theologically very accurate, but yet they encounter difficulties and sufferings in this life. Affliction is the best book in my library. Now, as we speak of affliction, of course, I'm using that as, as, as synonyms with trials and troubles and difficulties and affliction and physical affliction, all of that sort of in a basket here. So, as we come to our text here, we'll be looking at, we've already seen verse 16 last time, but today, verse 17, this eternal weight of glory. As we would weigh our afflictions on the scales of eternity, we're going to see how we should properly view them. And then verse 18, how we're to focus on eternal realities that are not yet seen through the naked eye and not focusing on the things that are temporal and the things that are passing away. We must consider these eternal realities as we would know that they are true. That is, a glorified, risen Christ reigning supreme at the right hand of the Father. The Father dispensing all of His providence in perfection. All of His sovereignty controlling all things. And everything that He does is good and glorious and worthy of His glory. His sovereign rule is perfect. Of course, this morning, a message like this is primarily directed to those who are believers. If you're not a believer here, I hope that you will listen and to glean um, the truths here that are true for the children of God. So the title of the message is The Present and Eternal Fruit of Temporal Afflictions. And this is part two of this message. So first of all, verse 17, weigh your afflictions on the scales of eternity. He says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So it's, it's, it's really kind of looking to the future, thinking the future is more important than the present. Present sufferings, future glory that is to come. And not only did Paul um, present suffering that, that made him strong, but it enriched his eternal glory that awaited him. Now, he says momentary light affliction. Let's just pause for a moment and consider Paul. Was Paul's afflictions light? No, they weren't. Were they short, momentary, in an earthly sense? No. His whole life was marked as one who carried the brand marks of Christ, being beaten five times, thrown out to the deep, you know, 39 lashes, all of that, again and again and again. His life was one that was marked by trouble and difficulty. But it's only as you would take these, these difficulties and troubles and throw them on the scales of eternity that we see, yes, they are very short. This life is but a vapor. They're very light in comparison to the eternal glory that awaits the children of God. This present life is contrasted with eternal glory and eternal life. And so it's a split second That is, our 80 years of life compared to an eternity of vastness of glory that is all for all of the children of God. 
momentary light affliction. That word affliction, a pressing, a trouble, a, a compressing together, a pressure, an oppression are synonyms that could be used for that Greek word. Of course, Paul felt the full force of these pressures in his life, as we said. He felt their intensity. But it was only in bringing all of these afflictions. We could go to 2 Corinthians 11, where they're listed, and look at that whole section of Scripture and throw them all on the scales of eternity. And you would think the scale would go like this with all of his afflictions, but when he throws it on the scales of eternity, they're like a feather that just float in the air. Because of the eternal glory that is His weighs so much more. That weight is so much greater than what is brief and momentary and temporal in this life. Look back with me in chapter 4 and verse 8. Brief summary here. Paul says, by the way, three of the four of these terms are related to the customs of wrestling. And what does wrestling communicate? Our kids have been wrestling with some neighbor kids recently in the front yard and you know, I'm, that's a little rough. Take it easy. You know, there's, you know, it, it's, it's fierceness and contact and slamming and all of that. It's pressure, right? Well, three, three or four of these terms in the um, Greek have the idea nuance of that. Listen to what he says. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. So, the idea of being persecuted, not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, persevering because he realizes that these things are but light and momentary in this life. And as we get to verse 18, because he's really looking ahead to the eternal realities that are his. Now, your assessment of your trials need to be divinely balanced. The text says, verse 17, momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. That word producing is an interesting word. It's present tense. It's a continual action. It is producing an eternal weight. It is bringing about this eternal result that is ours. And that word shows us that there's a real connection between our suffering in this life and the today and the here and now and the eternal glory that yet awaits each of the children of God. Too many of us focus on earthly assessments of our trials. We were talking about this at the men's breakfast. What's our natural tendency when we're hit with an affliction, hit with a trial? We begin to just look around our circumstances, the here and now. That's our, that's our natural response. And so we need to forget about earthly assessments of our trials because they fall far short of comparing them to the eternal glory that awaits the children of God. Now let's talk for a moment here about how. How do our trials produce eternal glory? Well, the, the truth of the text is right here before us. They produce for us an eternal weight of glory. But how do they do that? Let's talk about the practical aspects of this. Well, first of all, at the outset, I would say it is not as the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church teaching of the Roman Catholic Church says that somehow penance or inflicting pain is somehow earning you merit before God so that you can inherit glory. It is not like that whatsoever. But positively, how do trials produce this glory? And this is not an exhaustive list. The first is, it weans you from this world. 
it weans you from this world. Too many of us have an inordinate attachment and affection for the things of this world. And it takes a fierce affliction that comes from God's sovereign hand to shake us and awaken us to begin to consider what's really important in this life. And so it weans us from the world. It throws us to the feet of Christ. It throws us there to beg for mercy and to plead, O Lord, please superintend this situation. Guide me, lead me, that I might honor You through this difficulty and this trial. And then as that exercise would continue in a very real sense as you're communing with God and you're falling down before Him, you're pleading your need of His care, He begins to change your affections. And then you begin to look on the world with disgust and you begin to long for the eternal realities that are yours in Christ. You know that the Spirit has been sent to be the Comforter. And you begin to sense His presence in a supernatural way. Not that you're seeing, not that you're doing cartwheels, but you sense the presence of God in the midst of a trial as He draws near supernaturally in a way that cannot really be explained with words, but must be experienced by the child of God. And then as those affections are changed, and as you experience comfort, and as you begin to weigh your difficulties on the scales of eternity, you see, what is this life anyway? What is this life but a vapor, and one that is one of difficulties and sufferings? And then you begin to long for heaven, and you pant after Christ, and you want to see Him face to face. This is how trials produce glory, brethren. Because in all of those exercises that the Christian goes through, what does that do? It brings glory to God. His children are seeking Him and worshiping Him and pleading for His care and His help. Trials purify us. They help us to cut off sins. They help us to cut off besetting sins as we would draw near to Him. It's not so easy to slip into these various things that you struggle with. They purify us. And then it's a recognition that truly we are being conformed into the image of Christ. By God's grace, as you would go through trials for some years, if you've been a believer for any time, you look back five years, ten years, and you see, by God's grace, God has sanded so many of those rough corners down. He's got so many more to go. But by God's grace, He's, he's conforming me into the image of Christ. Today in our Sunday school lesson, we're going to be considering chapter 5 of the London Baptist Confession on providence, on God's divine providence. And in paragraph 5, it's a fascinating paragraph. It talks about how God allows sometimes sin, troubles, difficulties in His children for His own benefits. And He gives five. I'm not going to give those now. But the beginning of the paragraph reads as the, like this. The most wise God does oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifold temptations and of the corruptions of their hearts. And He goes on. So that's just to whet your appetite. Hopefully you'll want to be there uh, for that class um, after the service. God works the fruit of patience and endurance and perseverance so that we can bear up. What does perseverance mean? A bearing up under difficulties so that by God's grace, you're stronger and you don't just collapse. You know, you can endure by God's grace as you look to Him for strength and as He works that fruit, that wonderful fruit that I hope we all long for, that fruit of patience that we all need so desperately bad. Think of 
the martyrs of the Christian church. You know, talk about afflictions and troubles. Well, being killed for your faith in Christ is probably one of the ultimate afflictions, right? Look at Stephen's testimony as he stands before the religious rulers of the day as they're stoning him. What a great witness to the world. What a testimony um, to those around us. And think of Latimer and Ridley under the reign of Bloody Mary in England. And think of the other examples that you know of, of the martyrs of the Christian church and how God has used it to fuel the growth of the church. Think of in persecuted countries, how the gospel is treasured in the word of God. And, and in some places they have one page per person and they meet secretly and change pages then after they've memorized it and meditate on it. Where's our hunger for the word of God like that? And sometimes I think God knows that He must send difficulties and trials to humble us and to make us long for heaven and to feed on His Word all the more. You see, we're so distracted in America with the tinsel and the, all the decorations and all the good things that God has given us that we forget about these things that are fundamental and essential in our walk. I think these two ideas are set forth in a wonderful way in Pilgrim's Progress a book that I love very dearly. Um, you remember Pilgrim as he's going through Vanity Fair. It's Pilgrim and uh, Christian and uh, Faithful as they go through there. And how did Pilgrim persevere? He kept his mind's eye on the celestial city. The whole book, he's focusing on heaven. He's focusing on the reward. Did he sway off a few times? Yes, but ultimately, that's his goal. That's where he's going. And that's where his focus is. And so he endures the difficulties and troubles that come his way. But there, of course, in God's sovereign plan, it's an allegory, but faithful is martyred. And Christian is released and he's able to go on. Well, under the martyrdom of faithful and Bunyan's pastoral insight is incredible through this book. You have to look for that when you read it. What happens? There's a young man peering through a window, hopeful, and he sees the martyrdom, he sees the joy, he sees how he faced death, and he's converted. And so he's on the way, and they become pals as they continue on. So God uses, again, you know, the pilgrim there, a picture of how he persevered, but then also how when we persevere as God's children, it is a testimony unto the world. It's a testimony to those non-believing family members when a family member has cancer and they're pulling their hair out and they don't know what to do and, and all of that because it's a common sister, but yet you know God's in control of that situation. The applications could go on. So that's some of the ways how trials produce glory in us. Now, we have to remember, use the scales of eternity. The next time you encounter a difficulty, a trial, uh, maybe one that you're facing right now, you have to remember, what is God's assessment of this difficulty that I'm going through? It must be thrown on the scales of eternity. Using earthly weights and measures will do nothing but lead you to despair, discouragement, anger, disappointment, uh, bitterness, sometimes envy. But on the heavenly scale, as you would look with the eyes of eternity, and you see that your afflictions, all of your afflictions thrown on one side of the scale, is producing such an eternal weight of glory that you see them for what they are. Now, does that make it just easy to go through anything? No. 
But God does give us these truths in His Word to help us to have a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective, so that we might bear up under them. Your afflictions must be weighed on the scales of eternity to have a proper perspective. Let me give you an example. Psalm 73. Many of you are familiar with that psalm, Asaph, right? And as he was using an earthly scale of assessing his situation, what happened? It led to despair. He was envious of the arrogant. He was envious at their prosperity. And in fact, in verses 13 and 14, it says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart poor and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. That's an earthly assessment. Here he is, a lover of God, a worshiper of God, right? And here he's, surely in vain I've kept my heart poor. He's looking at earthly rewards. He's using an earthly scale, an earthly scale that has no significance for eternity. What he needed, brethren, was the balance of the sanctuary. He needed an eternal scale so that he could view these things as what they really are. And just a few verses later, the text says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. You see, we need an eternal perspective on these types of things. We need to assess the difficulties that come into our life and look at them through the lens of eternity to see what they really are, what purposes God is really doing in our hearts to have the right perspective. But Paul doesn't stop there. Look at the last few words of this verse. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. What Paul is saying here is there is really no valid comparison whatsoever. He uses a hyperbole here. One would be enough, but he compounds it. It, A bully is to propel or to throw hyper over and beyond. So the idea is a throwing beyond and overshooting a superiority. And then, though that's not enough, he doubles it in the original. Far beyond All comparison. What's far beyond all comparison? Our little, tiny, momentary light afflictions compared to the eternal glory that awaits the children of God. It's just far, far, far. You can't even compare the two. They're so far removed. Our English cannot really translate the Greek well, but um, some attempts have been made. The idea of all out of proportion has been suggested. Exceeding all limits. Or the one that I like, exceeding, exceedingly glorious. Far beyond all comparison. And so here we have the idea of this truth summed up here and then the magnitude of this sentence that's magnified for us. There's no comparison that can be made. Now, I guess um, a qualifying word is in um, order here. Don't mistake troubles difficulties as a result of your sin as those who add as as something that adds to this eternal glory. No, I would say that's not so. The foolish behavior of sin, um, which leads into punishment or consequence, does not produce glory. First Peter 2.20, what credit is there if you sin and you're treated harshly? There's no credit for that. There's no merit to that. There's nothing wonderful about that. It is... 
It is not all suffering that produces this weight, but rather suffering directly related to the cause of Christ, the cause of the glorious gospel of Christ, the advancement of the cause of God, and the glory of God. It's sufferings endured for Christ's sake, without any sin, just for Christ's sake that that bring this glory. The trials that God sends for refining His people and, and the benefit of His church and ultimately His glory. So brethren, remember, your present difficulties do not compare to the eternal glory that awaits you. This is good news. This is, this is, this is great news from the Word of God. Now, as we take this text and put it side by side with James 1, I'm not even going to turn there because... You've all been in the faith long enough. You know what it says. My brethren, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials and difficulty. We're not going to read the rest, knowing that it produces um, endurance in us. When we put those two, this text and, and the text in James side by side, we ought to conclude one thing. This makes suffering not something that just simply needs to be endured or persevered through, but something that should be wholeheartedly embraced as coming from the hand of God. Consider it joy. You believe God is sovereign. You believe the providence of God is being unfolded in your life. Embrace what He sends to you. Now, that's easier said than done. I'll be the first to say that. It's very hard. Listen to what Charles Hodge says. Not only does God reward His people with joy while they go through affliction but also makes our afflictions the means of working our joy. And if you think about that for a minute, our afflictions for the means of working our joy, again, that's the end result of the practical things list that I gave you five, ten minutes ago, of as we're driven to our knees, as, our, as we're weaned from the world, as our dependence upon God is enhanced. And so, brethren, God calls each of us to embrace our afflictions as a means of producing future glory as a means of producing the glory that He has waited for us. We need to look on the affliction as divine medication coming from, from the great physician Himself, from the pharmaceutical uh, uh, pharmacy of heaven, and it's divinely prescribed to each child of God just in the right measure, just the right dose, just the right drug. It's divinely prescribed for you. And so you must embrace it. And embrace it with joy as God would give you grace to do so. Because you know the end result. Not only is He producing eternal glory, but He's conforming you to the image of your dear Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, having looked and considered something of verse 17, this momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. Let's move on to verse 18. Verse 18, our point is you must endure your afflictions with an eternal focus. And these two verses are very closely related. I want you to, to, to see that as we go through there. Let's lead, read verse 18. While we look at the things which are, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Ask yourself, what are you looking at when you go through a difficulty, when you go through a trial? What is your focus upon? It's typically your circumstances. And the Bible here, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul pens for us that our gaze is to be upon eternal things. 
We're to focus on those. The word scopio in the original is where we get telescope, microscope, even a gun scope. And what do you do through a scope? You look and you gaze. You, you contemplate. You, you consider. Let me give you an illustration. The last time I pulled out our telescope that we have, probably a year, a couple years ago, um, sadly, but there was a full moon. You know, it takes 20 minutes to set it up. You get the right lenses. You clean it all. It's all set up. Well, the family just doesn't go, okay, that's cool. You know, okay, we're done, right? No. Wow, look at that crater. Look at the, look at the beam of glory around the roundness of the moon. We're contemplating. We're focusing. We're zeroing in on that. We're fixing our eyes upon it. We're directing our attention to it. And that is the force of this word. While we look. It's not just a casual look, like I just looked at that hymn board. No, it is a gaze. It is a focus. It is a deliberate look and consideration of what you're focused upon. And here, the text says, not the things which are seen, not necessarily your circumstances, not necessarily what your eyes can actually see, but look at the things which are unseen. And so the unseen things are to be our focus uh, the, the things, or you might think of it as, as the things you can see and the things not yet seen, because those eternal realities that you can't see now, you will see one day, brethren. So that might be a better way to think of it, the things you can't see, but yet you will see. Paul is not simply contrasting things together of visible and that inherently invisible, but rather what is visible now versus what is not yet visible but will soon be revealed at the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ when He comes in glory. The consummation of the ages, it will all be set forth and clearly seen then. Paul had an eternal perspective. You could look at many places through the epistles and, and so forth. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and things that we long to see. He talks about this present world passing away. Example after example could be given. So the eternal spiritual realities that we know to be true by faith and that we know that the Word of God teaches, those are the things that should consume our minds. Um, Turn to the book of Romans with me. Romans chapter 8 in verse 24. Paul, in this place, in Romans 8, this jewel of this uh, book of Romans, um, in verse 24 and 25, communicates a very similar thought. He says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly await for it. And then listen to the wisdom of uh, Matthew Henry. He says, and this is, this is good, Make it your end and scope not to escape present evils and obtain present good, both which are temporal and transitory, but to escape future evil and obtain future good. He's talking about present evils, present comforts. Future evil, future comforts. Okay, so that should be our scope. And he goes on, which, though unseen, are real, are certain, and are eternal. So, Matthew Henry gleans the, the substance of uh, this passage here. 
So earthly, temporal cares, they're fleeting. They do not deserve so much of our focus and energy. And too many of us spend inordinate amounts of time dwelling on temporal things, on things that are passing away, things that have no eternal significance whatsoever. And we need to consider these things. Are we spending too much time obtaining riches, trying to build our bank accounts, the 401Ks, now, the things I'm listing, there's nothing wrong with this type of thing in moderation um, is in providing for your family, so don't take this the wrong way. But sometimes we can spend so much time on honor, on prestige, on, on climbing the corporate ladder, on all of these things, profits, career, all these things which are temporal and will pass away. Verse 18 tells us very clearly that these eternal realities can only be seen through the eye of faith. If you're an unbeliever here today, you're not going to see anything of these eternal realities. You may read of something, or you may read of heaven in the Word of God, but without faith, you can't really believe that. First of all, you have to have saving faith. You have to be born again. You have to believe and trust that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And he was cursed and he was murdered on a cross as he, and as he took all of God's wrath, paying for the sins of all of his people. And then he was buried and he rose again and now he's ascended at the right hand of the Father. It's a believing that yes, he has died for my sins. And then you repent from your sin. You, you, your heart is changed. And then you can see something of these eternal realities. But without repentance and faith and a trust in Christ, you can't see these things. It's like studying Mary Poppins or something. It's just another story. You must be born again if you're not in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.7, just a few verses down. Um, by the way, the end of chapter 4 is very closely related to the first ten verses of chapter 5. I'm resisting the urge to go ahead and continue preaching through here. We have a series to get back to. but Look at verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Such a short little phrase, and it sums up so much truth. We walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. We don't walk by the prison bars being here, the lashes on my back, the scars on my back. I don't walk by those things. I walk by faith, Paul says. Consider the heroes in Hebrews 11. You know, the hall of faith. Again and again there, many times. It's all by faith. By faith. And so many of them suffered there. And these things they saw and they welcomed them at a distance, as it says, for Abraham. But as a Christian, you must make a valid assessment of these things. Of seeing the things which are unseen and considering the things which are seen. And I think there's a great example in Moses. And um, Don't turn there. The verses I'm going to comment on are Hebrews 11, 25-27 if you want to look at them later. But consider Moses here. Now, this is a glorious passage of Scripture. He has status. He has power. He has authority. He has treasures. He has luxury. He has all of that. And he reckons it temporal. He goes on and he talks about the ill treatment, the persecution, the wrath of the king. Temporal, right? But then, the reproaches of Christ. The reward that yet awaits. Even the wrath of God. Eternal. He says in 11.27, By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, 
How did you endure, Moses? As seeing him who was unseen. Seeing him who was unseen. How? By faith. By faith. And isn't that really really what the whole idea of the chapter is about? If you go back to verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if you're in Christ, you can see these things. And by God's grace, you can, you can look and you can focus on them in, in a myriad of ways. But remember, the things which are seen are so temporal. We need to put on our eternal lenses, our eternal glasses to consider these things. <clears throat> now, what are some of these eternal realities um, that we can focus on? Well, obviously, the Word of God is full of them, right? We have descriptions of heaven. We have descriptions that the Son of God sits at the right hand of the Father and the Father rules in perfection and His sovereignty. We can think of how heaven is ordered in such a way. We can look in Revelation 4 and 5 and see the anthems of praise and and adoration given to God and that worship that is so pure. And we can consider that. Those are eternal realities which are happening now. Which, which are happening now, even you know, while the difficulties and trials and the things are happening with your life presently, but those are what's happening now as you would lift up from your temporal situation. A sovereign Lord ruling all things in perfection. This is why Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Because He knows our minds are weak. He knows we're sheep. He knows we need these things to strengthen our faith that we might persevere and bear up under difficulties. So this is one of the keys to endurance. Let us then look to God and unseen things with a new zeal. And these will help make our afflictions light. They will help us to pull through them. Oh, how I pray that the Lord would press these eternal truths on our minds as needy children. We have an eternity with Him and all eternal glory for a tiny bit of suffering and affliction here. We gain heaven for a little bit of sacrifice and inconvenience for us in this life. A life of suffering. A life that is so short. I want to point out one final thing before we go to the conclusion, and that is the very first word in verse 18. I want you to look in your Bibles. Momentary light affliction producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look at the things, while we look at not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. This while word is very important. Uh, This is a condition upon which the blessings of verse 17 are made effectual. You might think of it being translated like this. Provided that we look at unseen eternal realities and not the things of this earth. Hodge brings this out uh, in in a wonderful way. Uh, The idea provided that. So it's, it's almost as though it's conditioned upon the fact of what are we gazing at through our scope. Are we gazing at our circumstances? Are we looking at the ground and all of that? Well, your afflictions are going to be heavy and difficult to go through. But as you would zero in on the eternal realities that are yours, they begin to lighten and dwindle in in insignificance. Now, I know that's easier to preach than to go through when we're talking some severe, serious, difficult 
difficulties, but what you're going through and what I'm going through is nothing new to the Christian church. There's nothing new. And these truths are set forth in the Word of God and we must embrace them by faith. And truly, by God's grace, count it joy. And embrace them because we know God is working out something wonderful in us and preparing us for eternity. Well, in conclusion, I hope this has been something of a small encouragement for those who are going through difficulties, health trials, those looking for work, those that are financially in trouble, those who have rebellious children. I hope this has been some encouragement to you. I know many of you feel beat up. I know the temptation can be, I give up. I've had enough. And you want to roll over and be done. That's not an option. <laughs> First Peter 4.13 But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Um, we need to, some, some of us, I think, when we're going through these times and as we're focusing on eternal realities, we need to pull out our passport. And our passport says, a citizen of heaven. That that is, our, that is the true, that, that's, a, that's a reality for us. And that is where we're going. And, and we can feel homesick. Like Paul, what does he say in verse 8 of chapter 5? We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. Citizen of heaven. That's my home. That's where I want to go. And Lord, hasten the day that I can go there. We need to look to Christ for strength. Hebrews 12, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the originator of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. To be a joint heir with Christ means that we will suffer with Him. In this world, we will have tribulation. Romans 8.17 And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Last time I gave the illustration of Michelangelo reducing a chunk of marble into a glorious statue. And one, was, one of the statues he did was David. But there's carves of the knife, there's hammers, there's chisels, and that's painful to us when we're going through that. But, but that, that's God's divine means of perfecting us as His children. So all of your difficulties, all of your trials that you go through are for a purpose. A.W. Pink says this, all things work together for good. Romans 8.28, right? Listen to what he says. They not only operate, they cooperate. They all act in a perfect concert. Though none but the anointed ear can catch the strains of the harmony. This makes no sense for the unbeliever. But all of the difficulties, all of the trials, all the persecutions that are coming, that to the unbeliever, it's confusion, right? But to the anointed ear, it's a perfect harmony. It's a concert. It's a philharmonic concert going forth with clarity. God is working His purposes in His children. He's working all things for good. He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. One of the Puritans, Robert Layton, said, Adversity 
is the diamond dust that heaven polishes its jewels with. The diamond dust, some of the hardest substance in the world, that heaven polishes its jewels with. That's what adversity is. That's what it is. Now, if you're here today and you haven't trusted Christ, there's no hope for you in this text. Unless you believe and you trust in Christ for salvation, you will be lost. Paul said earlier in this book, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. You see, to the degree that you hear the Gospel proclaimed from this pulpit, on radios, from your parents, all the different avenues in which the Gospel goes forth, that Christ died for sinners and you harden your heart, it is an aroma of death to death. It will be an eternal death for you if you do not come to Christ clinging to Him, admitting that you can't save yourself, admitting that you're a horrible sinner, He will save you. Repent and come. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus said, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He goes on to say, My burden is light. The only other time that word light occurs in the New Testament. In our text here, momentary light affliction. His burden is light to that degree as well. Come to Christ if you do not know Him. Let us pray. Father God, we bless You and praise You for the clarity of Your Word. Oh God, how I pray that these words, the doctrine, the truth that has been set forth would be driven home into our hearts and our minds. Lord, that indeed You would grow us in holiness, that You would accomplish Your great work in us. And Lord, may it be that You would impress upon us the necessity to focus on eternal realities. Lord, that we would consider that eternal glory, that we would use an eternal scale to weigh our difficulties and afflictions and see them aright. Oh Lord, we bless You and thank You. In Christ's name, Amen.